I'm Helen Marshall, and this is the Diary of a CLO. I hope no one's listening, but if you are, definitely share it. I had the privilege of interviewing Stuart Broad at Thrive's Level Up Live event, which is an event we run exclusively for our customers. And this year we focused on how people can hone their content, learning and skills strategies within their organisations. I knew this conversation was going to be a good one, but the level of honesty and authenticity Stuart showed us was just next level. He shares how his game has evolved, how short-term goal setting allows him to focus, and how positive psychology has played a huge part in how he leads effectively. There's lessons in this for all of us. Enjoy. Stuart Broad, everyone. Great to have you here, Stuart. Um, depending on your personal preferences, you'll either know Stuart as amazing England cricketer or Molly King's fiance. <laughs> <laughs> but either way, um, you're in the presence of an English sporting hero. You've been called the game changer. You're one of England's most prolific bowlers. And for anyone that's followed your career, they'll know that it's had its peaks and its troughs. So. You were dropped from the England side, fought your way back in, and have just obtained greatest test wicket-taking partnership ever, which is such a phenomenal achievement. Um, and also, you've been uh, awarded an MBE. Alongside that, you're obviously constantly balancing your personal and professional life, having just become a new father as well. Congratulations. How How are you finding balancing everything? Is it what you expected? Is it more challenging or is it everything you expected? Uh, firstly, thank you very much for having me. It's, um, it's one of the most special things I've ever been through having little Annabella. She's four months old. Uh, she's currently going through teething, a first tooth. So I used to look 36, now I look 56. It's been <laughs> the hardest four days of my life. But um, no, it, it's, it's been an incredible experience. It's, it, it really is a beautiful thing. And I quite deliberately wanted to leave um, having children until I was later on in my career because being an international cricketer, travel is a huge part of our job. And you know, I think I've peaked at 320 nights away from home uh, in a year. And you know, that's not something that's sustainable with, with a young family. So. Uh, it's been quite a deliberate ploy to, to, to leave it as late as possible and, it, and you know, the timing feels just about perfect and um, you know, Molly's been an absolute superstar, she's such a natural brilliant mum, she's gone back to work already actually so that's you know, four months maternity is not a huge amount of time, she's, uh, she finds uh, an amazing amount of time in her life to be able to do a lot of things but um, you know it's uh, it's incredibly special but it, it teaches you a lot of different things it's it's certainly not the easiest job in the world and you know I don't think you'll ever know pressure until you've been a parent and you have to be on a busy aeroplane you've got to try and put a pram in the overhead locker you know that is just one of the most horrendous experiences of, uh, of you'll ever get but um, yeah it, it's been incredible and um, you know, a friend wrote to me a card when she was born and said it's the only job in the world that gets better every single day and, and uh, it's certainly been that so far. Have you learned any lessons so far from that? Because there's no textbook, right? You know, even knowing that you've got to put a pram on top of the, the, the holdaway. Um, what have you learned so well, far? Well, I feel like there's been a lot of textbooks written and a lot of podcasts and a lot of information, but um, it's so specific to the baby that comes your way, isn't it? So, uh, you know, we've, we've read a lot, we've listened, we've talked uh, to a lot of different people, but um, you've just got to react to, to, to every situation. And, and you know, <laughs> four days ago, we, we sort of did a bit of a fist pump and said, we've cracked this. You know, she's sleeping beautifully. Like, we're so happy, we're delighted. And then, bang, we actually promised, we, we, we promised we'd never say that ever again because um, it's almost as if Annabella heard us and was like, I'm going to teach them a lesson here. Um, but yeah, I mean, it, I, I've learned an incredible amount. And it, it's, uh, it, I suppose what, the biggest thing that hit me as soon as she was born is that it's the first time really, don't let Molly hear you say this maybe, but first time that I'd say I'd give my life for someone else like, and genuinely mean it. And um, it's quite a powerful thing, I think. And you, you're responsible for how 
that uh, little person grows up and and um, and develops into a character. So it's it's pretty cool. And we hear you hear a lot in the media about um, the sacrifice that parents of people who go on to be sporting legends make when they're younger in terms of um, you know traveling to to training or taking getting up early and going to competitions. And I know you've spoken previously about how your mum did that for you. Do you have a newfound appreciation of that? Now you are a father yourself. Oh, absolutely, yeah. I mean, I think I think so. It's quite selfish. A professional sport is is a very selfish career. You have to be fully committed to get the best out of you, and um, you you don't necessarily think what other people are going through with with children um, outside because you've not had them yourself. But um, when I look back to my childhood, the commitment that my parents put into taking me all over the country to to to, to training on a Thursday night after school and Tuesday night after school and sitting there and just watching, uh, almost like wasting their time in, in a way um, to help me grow and develop. And the biggest thing that when I look back to my childhood, I never felt any pressure from my parents at all. My dad was a, a professional cricketer. He played for England um, in the late 80s. But always when I finished playing, the first question when I got in the car was, did you have fun? Did you enjoy it? It was never why did you drop that catch or why did you not uh, do that? You could have won the game if you'd have done that. It never felt anything to do with performance as a, as a kid. And I think I used to, to turn up to, to matches when I was playing for, I was at Leicestershire in the young age groups or whether I was playing for school and kids would have been there with their parents much earlier than us and in the nets and training already. Um, and they, they, they didn't have an awe of having fun. And I think uh, for me, whether I was playing in the back garden or whether I was playing for Leicestershire under 13s or whatever, it was the, the first thing on my mind was enjoying it. And I've managed to carry that through my whole career. And, um, you know, it's important that in sport you don't judge yourself too much on performance because there's a lot of people out there that do do that. It's a, it is a results-driven business. But if you get too fixated with judging yourself just on stats and on winning and losing, some of that is out of your control, but you can always control enjoying it. That persistence obviously paid off massively. You were made England cricket captain at the age of 24, which when you think about it is such a, such a, a privilege and an honour at that age to, to be given that responsibility. How did you approach that? Were you ready for it? Were you expecting it at the time? Uh, ready for it? Absolutely not. No, and, and um, I, I certainly wasn't expecting it. I remember being, a, I was actually just in a hotel and I got a call from the chairman of selectors uh, asking if I wanted to become the captain of England. And I was like, oh, OK, um, not something that you're ever going to turn down. But I hadn't I didn't have that as a, a goal of mine. I didn't have that as a, a particular aim. I think particularly in your early 20s in sport, all you're doing is looking to improve yourself as a player to, to make contributions to stay in the team and to, to build a uh, build longevity throughout throughout your career. So. Um, I, I, didn't, I didn't do any sort of management training. I didn't do any um, leadership training. Um, but of course, I wasn't going wasn't gonna to say no. Um, when I look back with hindsight and, and leadership and um, you know, growing personalities and giving confidence to other people is something that's always interested me. But I, I, didn't, I didn't know that at 24. And I, you know, I look back and, and think I probably didn't do it in, in my way. I, I didn't do it with the core values that I believe in leadership now, but also I probably didn't know what they were at that age. I was just trying to forge a career in, in international cricket. I, I didn't, I, I probably wasn't um, emotionally ready to lead a group of players who are a lot older than me, a lot of them. Some of them are 34, 35 at that time. Uh, I probably wasn't emotionally ready to lead a group of players um, in the direction that I specifically wanted to, but I, I've learned a huge amount and then the leaders that I, have worked under and I respect. I look for certain things that I that I really enjoy, and and for the first one is to be very authentic with the message that, that you're giving. Um, it's almost a bit like that. Do exactly what it says on the tin. You know, if you say that you're going to try and execute playing in this style, then as a player, you've got to go and do that. Whether you fail as a personally or not, you have to deliver exactly what you've said um, to your team, the style that you want to, you want them to play. You have to go and try and deliver that um, that skill completely. And uh, I, I probably wasn't, I didn't know the style of cricket I wanted to play at that age. So it was quite hard for me to say to a group of players, 
let's go and let's go and uh, deliver that style. Um, and you know, I, I probably didn't. Things didn't fall my way. I did. I captained in two World Cups, and we we did okay, but we didn't win them um, in conditions that were pretty difficult. Uh, one in Bangladesh, one in Sri Lanka, which are very foreign to the conditions we play in in England. So, um, yeah, I, I probably didn't. I probably look back at 36 years old now and say, if I had my time now, um, I would do it differently, and I'd be able to run it in a way that I I could see a very clear direction forward. Um, but I. It probably didn't come ma massively natural to me, but I see myself as a really good lieutenant. You know, I've always been a, a senior player within the group, uh, played a lot of cricket when I was younger, and I've always been a, a sounding board to, to different captains and, and lead, lead within the group in, in, in a positive way. And, um, you know, it, it's, uh, it's not something I regret accepting at the time, um, but I probably look back with a little bit of... Um, of regret of, of maybe not being as strong as I could have been. Yeah, I suppose hindsight's a wonderful thing, right? But at the time, were you, did you think, oh, maybe I'm not doing the best I could be? Or did you really feel like you were? No, I mean, I definitely felt like I was at the time. Yeah, I think, I think a, a huge part of captaincy um, within a big organisation like the England Cricket Board is, is managing up as well. Um, and when you go into selection meetings, being quite firm um as a captain you're not a, an official selector you've got different selectors and a chairman of selectors uh you're not an official selector so you, it's quite hard to get the, your exact team that you'd want to take onto the field over the line uh, so i probably didn't manage those situations as, as clearly as i could have done uh, and that's what i've said to captains that have taken over um in the past 10 years you know at the end of the day, you're the you're the person going onto the field. You need a, you need the the players around you to be the ones you want to to uh, have your back and and play in the style that you want. So um, yeah, I probably didn't manage up as well as I could have done, but I was pretty unaware of of that you, that you needed to do that. And you mentioned also managing players who were older than you. How did you approach that at the time? I think you got. You, you, you know, when players are playing into their 30s for, for England, they've obviously had a huge amount of success to do that. And they know a lot about the game. And you've got to get the, their experience and their knowledge into, into your group and your own mind. So I'm, I'm a believer that you get, the, get players as tight as possible. You get them believing in, in, um, in a strategy, in a style. Uh, I mean, I was captain of the T20 uh, cricket and a bit of the did a bit of the ODI cricket, so the white ball, the the shorter format. So it was quite. It wasn't a three. It wasn't every day of the year that I could have an influence. It would be, I'd do it for two months. I'd have two months away. Do it for two months. So you you had to be very consistent with the messaging to to um, revisit the messaging after a two month break where the the team might have been playing Test match cricket. Um, but. Generally, like the experienced players play for England are, are very solid characters and um, speak a lot of sense. And, you know, you need to get as much out of these sort of people to, to drive forward. Because I think we all know, we've all played in teams where if you get a few people pulling in different directions, uh, the whole thing can fall over pretty quickly. Mm. Yeah, I can relate to that. Um, you must have um, played or worked with a number of coaches in your career. Are there any particular styles of coaching that have, you know, resonated really well with you or have got the best out of you? Yeah, great question, actually, because I've, uh, I've been fortunate to play under some of the best coaches um, in the game and uh, a lot have had success, but in completely opposite ways. Uh, the, the most current one is a guy called Brendan McCullum, who was a very successful New Zealand captain. Um, very free spirit. He played the game in a hugely positive and attacking way. And he's almost been the perfect coach to come in for a player of my age because uh, he wants, his mindset is all about entertaining the people that are coming to watch. So he doesn't care necessarily about the result. He's, I've never heard him mention the result. He doesn't, he, he doesn't put any pressure on the players about result. He, he sees the day as a win if you can honestly say to the 50,000 people or 40,000 people that are at Lords, have they had a great day? Have you, have you done your best to make them smile? And it's such a refreshing approach because I've never heard any coach go down that route very much at international cricket and international sport. Results, it is results, results. If you lose, you get a telling off. If you win, you get a pat on the back. But he, he's taken the result completely out of it. And, and one thing that I've 
it's blown me away actually, but I've been, I've, I've watched him a lot, how he operates. Uh, every training session, he's, he's never the one on the ground, like doing all the catching, hitting the balls, making people move. He, but he just goes around and talks to every single player. And he spends two or three minutes, five minutes, 10 minutes with every player checking in, seeing how they are connecting with them, seeing what their mental worries are more than their technical worries. Um, and also in game situations, I've never heard him say a negative word to anyone. Um, if someone gets out in a slightly sort of um, non-positive way, all he will say is, I want you to be more positive. I need you to be more attacking. Go and express yourself more. Uh, don't, don't die wondering, you know, don't, don't come in and go, I could have done that. If you think about it, do it. And he took charge last May. So it's pretty impressive for a leader not to have said one negative word in that amount of time. And our results have turned from winning one in 17 when we went through the sort of coronavirus period to winning, well, I think we've played, we've won 10 out of 12, I think, and lost one by one run. Um, so same group of players. So it just proves that mindset is virtually everything at, at, at top flight sport. And he has managed players absolutely incredibly. Um, but he's got an experienced group. He's got guys, Jimmy Anderson's 40, I'm 36. He's got four or five players with 32, 33. So he, we can carry his messaging through the group very clearly. Um, a, another exceptional coach, but a completely opposite end of the spectrum was, was Andy Flower took over when we were, were struggling back in 2009 and he was a disciplinarian. Um, he was my way or the highway, very technical. I've seen him grab hold of players' helmets when they're in the nets and shake them, just saying like, you need to be better, you need to be better, don't do that, don't do that. So he, he ruled very strictly, but we got to world number one in three years because he would sit in rooms like this with big boards up and have stats everywhere saying, in the next two months, I need you to average that, I need you to average that. So it became like a, a complete like, vision for the whole group that numbers were everything and we were gonna get there. But it wasn't sustainable. We were amazing for three years and then we fell off a cliff because everyone was exhausted from it. Um, but I, I, I get the sense that, that Brendan's philosophy is very sustainable because it's very relaxed, it's, it's enjoyable to play and your only goal is to entertain. And that's, that's so refreshing. And clearly getting results maybe as quickly in, without that kind of negative connotation of everything that you know, has to be my way or the highway, but in that reinforcing through a positive psychology, it still sounds like you're able to get the results that, that you need. Yeah, I mean, I, I suppose you'd class Brendan more as a sports psychologist rather than a, a head coach. He, he thinks playing international sports should be, should be the best time of your life, the most enjoyable time of the, your life. So we've just done a five-week tour to New Zealand and he was, he was like, you're in the, one of the best places in the world. Why, not, why, why train for cricket when you could go and have a look at that beautiful mountain at Lake Taupo? And it's like, okay, I'll go to the mountain. You know, it's, it's, uh, he's very much of that belief that you're all brilliant players. That's why you wear three lines on your shirt. You've all done this for so many years. You know what you're doing. If you're mentally fresh when you walk on the pitch, you'll play great. If you're tired and you've overtrained and you're, you're t thinking technically, you'll get exposed. Uh, so he just wants you to be fit, fresh, and, and ready. Now, he, 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 you could come down to breakfast and you, may, you might look a bit jaded and he'll go, you're not training today, go and play golf. And you're like, you sure? Yeah, yeah, go and play golf. And he means it, he's then not gonna go to his coaches, Brody's off to play golf again. You know, it, it, is, it is genuine. <laughs> You turn up on a match day, all, it's all we care about. You turn up with a match, on the match day with a smile on your face, with a positive energy, and, and drive the game forward in a positive way. And, and um, he's taught me a lot about language. Uh, like I mentioned to you, he's never said anything, anything negative at all. But language is so important within groups because you know how you feel when someone comes to you and goes, I'm tired. It makes you go, well, I might be a bit tired, actually. Yeah, I'm pretty tired. But if you go, you know, I just need a good night's sleep and I'll be great. It's such, a, it's such a different way of managing it. You're still letting your friend know that you're a bit on the edge. But um, it, it's a positive flip on your brain to think, you know, I'll be good to go uh, when I've had a little bit of rest. And it, it, it's very easy in cricket. It's five days long, a test match. You go through peaks and troughs of emotionally. 
It's quite easy at times to sit down to, next to your mate and go, it's not my day, it's not going well today, it's not for me. But he's trained the whole group to abolish that completely. It would be very much like, well, just accept that today's not your day, but tomorrow can be, and you'll be great tomorrow. And um, it just fills the group with energy all the time. And is that as a direct result of that coaching philosophy, or is that something that you were working on personally yourself as well? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I do work on that quite a lot. Um, I've gone through a, a huge journey with uh, the psychology of the sport. I think between the ages of 18 and 24, didn't believe in it, sports psychologists. I think that was the culture around sport back in sort of 2007, 8, 9. It was, um, but then I sat down with the team sports psychologist because um, I wanted to get more consistent in, in what I was doing and, and my performances. And... He's, he, he was like, taught me through your routine, what do you do? And I said, look, I, I need to tell you, I don't believe in sports psychology. I know it's your job, but I don't really believe it. <laughs> so we went, we went through everything I do, and he, go, he basically said, you're doing exactly what I would tell you to, to do. We just need to refine certain things to drive, to drive you to be more consistent. Um, and then over time, I started actually believing that was the most important thing. So actually... I'll have time where I won't go into the nets and bowl for 40 minutes physically. I can just do things in my brain and write notes that make me feel ready to play. And uh, I think goal setting is, is, important, is an important journey within that sports psychology. I think when I look back even at 14, 15, I had, a, I had, a, I had an ultimate goal. But interestingly, it wasn't just to play for England. It was always to be hugely successful and win games for England. And I remember getting my cap from Sri and Botham in Colombo and Sri Lanka. And of course, it was an amazing feeling. But I looked at the cap and a lot of players I've heard say, oh, this is the best day of my life. But I didn't feel that. I said, right, my, sort of, my, my job starts now, my journey starts now. I've got, to, I've got to give that cap some memories. I've got to give that cap some history and, and get some wins under it. And, and that, was, that, that was my mindset sort of growing. Um, but it's important to have an ultimate goal, and that was my ultimate goal, to be successful for England. But I, it's not as if I wake up and think about that every day, because you know, that's irrelevant to what I do on the training field every day and what I, I put into practice. And it's been a bit of a culture within cricket that you can look too far ahead the whole time. We're obsessed with the Ashes, which is England versus Australia, and it's every four years. But it's all we talk about within the press and fans and sometimes the team. Oh, the Ashes is three years away, how are you feeling? It's three years away, like, you know, I shouldn't be thinking about it. And um, I made a, a really strict decision a couple of years ago to really shorten my thinking. And um, when you get to my age at sport, it can finish tomorrow. And I know that's a cliche and very easy to say, but it literally can. And you're on the, you're, you're, you're place in the team is on an opinion of someone else, whether that's a selector, captain, a coach, whatever. So you almost have to take that away from it. And my goal, my ultimate goal now is to finish playing cricket on my own terms, because I think that's quite a, uh, I think that's quite a, a great place to start a new chapter in your life if you finish playing happy and content and not feeling like you need more. Um, I've seen a lot of teammates of mine over the years finish before they were ready and they struggle with that for years to come after. So that, that's my, my ultimate goal. But how I'm doing that is each day I write down three things I'm grateful for, three thoughts of how I'm feeling and three positives in my life each morning. And I focus on that for that day, attack, give as much energy to that day, whether that's you know, with Molly and Annabella, or whether that's on the cricket field, um, and then sign it off. And um, I've felt that's such a refreshing ap approach to my cricket because I'm not worrying about what's happening in July. I don't care what's happening in July, actually. If I can have, if I can have a positive energy and, and give other people energy through that day, if I can walk into the changing room, see the physio and go, oh, you're looking great today, mate. Wow, we had a haircut. You look brilliant and he feels good, then I'm happy. And um, I feel like I've enjoyed my cricket way more in the past year um, through having such a short-term focus, the shortest focus that I could have. Attack the day, 
attack that test match, sign it off. And if that's my last, I'm happy because I've given my heart and soul to it. And then if I get picked for the next one, brilliant. And, uh, you know, that's come, I, I sort of 34 when, when I came to the conclusion that that was the best way for me to operate. Uh, and I've been through so many peaks and troughs to get there, to be honest, because like you mentioned, I have been, I have been dropped and left out of the England team um, on many occasions, again, on an opinion of, of different people out of my control. And I've got a great support work that I bounce off. I think um, you have to have a, a 24 hour morning of a 24 hour grieving process of a decision that's gone against you, because if you didn't, then you know, what do you, do you care enough? Like, do you care enough for that? And, and you got three or four people in my life that I'll speak to and my mum's the most positive person in the world. So I call her, go, mum, I've been dropped. And she'll be like, oh, great. Oh, oh, that's a great opportunity to get back in the team. And it's really positive. And, and it's like, okay, yeah, feeling better after that. And then I'll speak to Molly, who doesn't know a lot about cricket, but she'll be very much, we'll come out of the bubble. You know, you've got a great family at home. You've got a great life. Don't put too much pressure on yourself from playing cricket. I, I, you know, I always call Sean, who's probably taught me out of stopping playing cricket three or four times. Uh, Sean, I think he's founder of Thrive, actually. Um, and, and, I'll, and I'll call him and go, oh, mate, I've, I've been dropped and I'm fuming because I've got 10 wickets in the last three games and I deserve to have that shirt. And he'll go, I've got no idea what you're talking about. But, you know, put it behind you and move on and, and attack next week. And... You bounce different ideas off different people within a close network. And after 24 hours, you honestly can reset yourself and, and go again. And I th I, I'd argue I'm one of the better people at bouncing back from um, disappointments because I have a wonderful knack of when I have been left out, the next game, I come back with a bang. And um, that's when you get sort of teammates and going, you should never have been left out. And that gives you a bit more longevity. So uh, obviously what I do, uh, being able to sign off disappointment after 24 hours and then forget about it and move forward to, to getting up back to a positive mindset works um, because I've proven that over probably three or four times of being dropped. I come back with a bang and, and prove um, whoever dropped me wrong. <laughs> <laughs> do you think being dropped from, from England actually improved your game as a result? Like it's, it, we've spoken about hindsight and looking back and thinking actually it was a good thing that that, that did happen because it did improve my game. Um, maybe it sharpens my focus slightly. Um, it, it, it's not a nice experience getting, getting dropped from a team or, or uh, missing out for a week. Um, and I always, I always question the, the, the leaders or the people that are leaving me out. I think that's quite an important psyche for me. I, I think it's, it's important to ask why, uh, rather than going off into the corner and having a whinge and a moan with your teammates and going, oh, it's a joke, it's a joke, it's a joke. Uh, I actually ask like, the horse's mouth really and say, why? Like, give me the facts, give me the reasons. Um, and when you have that, it's a bit more easier to, to understand. And, but it then also creates a driving force um, because I can create a little enemy in my mind. So if you drop me and you give me your reasons, I want to prove you wrong. And you can be in the forefront of my mind when I'm training or when I'm, I'm having the energy to uh, in, on the training ground or when I get back out there. Um, and it, it's a mental strength to... I have this thing called warrior mode, which I created with the sports psychologist when I was 24 to... to keeping control on the field, but also to be able to cope with pressure and to be able to deliver at high pressure moments. And it's pretty basic really, but um, I have checkpoints that I mark against. So uh, at the end of each day, I'll always say, did I uh, play with passion and drive? Did I create chances for the team? Uh, and did I drive the game positively forward with, with uh, strong language? And I can check those off and actually uh, the good thing about that is none of it's based on how many wickets I take, none of it's based on stats or winning that day or having a great day or having a bad day. I can, I can mentally make my day a success even if I get no wickets or no runs and um, I think that, that helps me control performance a little bit and then what I do on the field, I, I have a routine that I stick to every single day that uh, weirdly 
happens in threes, and I've got no idea why it happens in threes, but I, I get, always get sort of put my clothing on the same way. I spray three um, sprays of aftershave before I walk out the changing room. Uh, again, that started with a strange routine. Uh, then I always jog over the boundary rope because that's me entering the field, that's me entering the battlefield. I do three side steps one way, three side steps the next. And then I scratch, this sounds mad actually when I speak out loud. <laughs> I've only ever read this on an iPad. Um, then I scratch the bowling mark three times and uh, walk back to the end of my mark. Then I scratch my mark three times, bowl three balls to mid-off, and then bowl in my mind three balls, the ball I'm gonna bowl to the wicketkeeper, and then I'm ready to go. And actually, I think where that came from is whether I'm bowling, you know, I've bowled the first ball of an Ashes game in front of 199,000 people at the Melbourne Cricket Ground, or whether I'm playing for Edgerton Park in Melbourne Mowbray on a Saturday afternoon. My job doesn't change. I've still got to deliver that skill. I've still got to try and hit the top of that stump. Um, so replicate the same thing to take away that mindset of pressure. Because if you get your mind into that zone of, we've got to win today, we've got 60,000 people in the stadium, a million people watching on TV, if I don't take wickets today, I'm gonna to get dropped. If we have a bad day as a team, we're gonna get abused in the newspapers or on Twitter or on social media. As soon as your mind starts spiraling like that, you, it's very hard to get it back. So I stick to this routine, this structure, that, that's the same every day, that means that there's no real pressure on me delivering that ball because I've done it 10,000 times. And uh, it doesn't matter that people might be booing or cheering or, or, or whatever. I know what I need to do. Um, and then when I get in the heat of the bathroom, I can feel my adrenaline going and sometimes overheating and getting too involved in confrontation. Um, I simply look above the stands. So I make no eye contact with uh, opposition or teammates. I make no visual into the, into the stand. I look above it whether that's the blue sky, and that's me taking my mind out of the arena. Might be for 20 seconds, but that's me being able to get away from the heat of the battle, refocus on what I need to deliver. And by the end, by the time I've got back the 30 meters to the end of my mark, I'm fresh focused and, and ready to go. Um, so I have certain checkpoints that can keep me in control uh, when the pressure really hits and I feel like I've been really good at delivering under pressure. I've, I've, I've got key wickets when I need to. Um, I've, I've opened games up to, to, get, to get England winning games when, uh, when it didn't look like we could. And I think that's due to my, the processes that I go through. But the older I've got, I can recognise when the pressure's on. I can recognise when, okay, the team needs this now. And I can go, right, give me that ball now. I'm ready to go. I've got myself going. I've got my energies in exactly where it needs to go. Uh, I, can, I can change this game. Um, so I've gotten way more consistent the older I've got because I can recognise the moments that I need to go into warrior mode and lift it. And you can't live in warrior mode all the time. You know, one of the big, biggest frustrations in professional sport is you can get your career best and someone will go, why don't you do that every day? Yeah, I'd love to be able to do that every day. You know, I'd... I'd uh, I'd be a superstar if I did that, but it's about replicating over and over again your routines and, um, and con as consistently as you possibly can that will then deliver the results more often than not. Um, but you can only learn that through experience and, uh, and, and through living it. Mm. I, actually, I actually had what is warrior mode written down here and can we all get some? So it sounds like it might be a lot of effort though, those rules of three doing that every day. <laughs> yeah, that, I'm, I think I'm the only person that does the rule of three. But, uh, I, you know, I've seen loads of different players do it in different styles. Um, some, I've seen some like measuring their kit before they go out and that's just getting their mind away from the pressures of going out to bat at Lords and, you know, in a pressure scenario, it's about bringing yourself back to the habits that make you feel calm. And, you know, that could be applied to doing a speech in front, a keynote speech in front of a lot of people, like a TED talk or something. If you're thinking about the reach and where that's going to and who's listening and who's in the audience, you're going to get so phased and away from what you're doing. But if you have routines that can calm you down, um, you'll be able to deliver your skill. Mm -hmm. 
And thinking back to what you just mentioned around um, goal setting, obviously you wanted to achieve your best for England and obviously you just um, obtained the greatest test wicket-taking partnership alongside Jimmy Anderson, which is a phenomenal achievement. And just I'm, I'm going to put some context around that um, for people who might not be huge cricket fans. You, I think it was a, a thousand and one at the time when you obtained it wickets for, um, for in test matches and within test matches the most you can, wickets you can get. And correct me if I'm wrong on this. Um, across a whole team, across a test match, is twenty. So just to put that number in, into perspective a little bit, a huge achievement. Um, was it ever a goal that you'd set for yourself to achieve? Or did you ever think you would achieve that? Not a goal at all. Um, and not even going into that day that we did it, it was never a goal. It was, wasn't even talked about between us, to be honest. And um, we actually said after the day's play, this will be a moment we'll talk about in 20 years' time with a glass of red. But we've got a game to win now you know it, 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 I think with with achievements and things that go into the record books it's very much I can't think of many professional sports people that would sit the day after they've done something and go oh that was that was my dream that's what I've aimed to do that's very much safe for when you're not playing the sport anymore and you can look back with fond memories but but to go past Glenn McGrath and Shane Warne, uh, who were two heroes of mine growing up, it's, it's those sort of things where you need to pinch yourself sometimes and go, wow, like, this is really cool. It's really special. I had a picture of both of them on my, uh, a poster of both of them on my wall when I was growing up. So to even be around that um, calibre of cricketer is, is pretty breathtaking. And I think Jimmy and I's relationship's really special. We're, we're great friends. Um, and we've had amazing longevity together to hugely competitive. And, and the great thing about that is it's never been against each other. There's never been any competitiveness of, oh, I want that wicket. It's very much, the communication we have is, is incredible out in the field to work out of getting the, uh, the batters out, um, working out what the best delivery is on this surface to cause the most amount of, of pressure and most amount of trouble for them. And, um, uh, yeah, our, our communication that we try and share with the group and we, we talk every single ball and I'll suggest I'm a believer in I can see more in his action than he can feel and he's the same with me so I will always feed back and the amount of times he's sworn at me and told me to like do one and is is huge he's quite grumpy Jim um, <laughs> but that's never scared me to f share the feedback and I think sometimes because we've got such a great relationship we I'm never scared to share and he's never scared to share with me and, and um, I think that's been so crucial in, in our partnership because the moment you shut down as a person and you, and you don't share what's on your mind or you regret that in, in times to come and I think you grow so quickly as a group if you just open communication lines and that's something again that the new head coach has done incredibly. Yes, we've got experienced players in the group but we've also got three or four 22-year-olds and 21-year-olds in the group. And you know how scary it is when you walk into a team meeting or a changing room and you're, you're in there with people who might have played for 10 years. It's, it's quite daunting to then say exactly what you're thinking or, um, or, or you know, get across your point clearly. But what Baz does at the end of a day's play, rather than him stand up, who's you know, been doing it for 25 years, He'll just go uh, to the youngest player, Ollie, thoughts on the day? And Ollie will be like, oh, 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 oh. yeah. But, he, but because he does that five days a week and he'll open it up, the growth in these young people is awesome. Because, yeah, the first time you might speak in front of everyone, you say absolute nonsense and you might get on the team bus and go, oh, why did I say that for? That was rubbish. But the eighth time you do it, you're natural and you're calm and you give your honest opinion. And actually, it's so good as, a, as an old player to, to hear something from a young player. Actually, we, we could do this way better tomorrow, guys. Let's focus our brains and make sure that we, we hit this part of the game with a lot more positivity and energy. And you're like, yeah, actually, you're dead right. Um, so I think that's another thing that I've learned from, from this modern leadership group of, of opening up to every single voice. And um, it's scary at first, but it's the best way to grow leaders within your group. Just give people the opportunity. 
And there's something that links back to the authenticity piece that you mentioned right at the beginning there, how to retain that in the way that you communicate with people as well. 100%, yeah. I mean, it's, um, I think that sort of saying, you know, does what it says on the tin a little bit is you you make your your strategy of how you want to play the game clear to the group but you've got to live it every single day and I I, I often that's when I mentioned about the head coach never mentioning a negative word he must have to work quite hard at that that can't be just a natural thing for him to to never give any negative emotion away I always think he must get back to his room at night and like kick the chair and oh, what is going on here because the, the relaxed nature of like the first game he took over, we'd lost three or four wickets really quickly at Lords, and there was a bit of panic station. It was like, oh no, no. And he just strolled in and put, put music on and made a coffee. And like, coaches gone by, come in and kick the medicine ball, like shout around and go, what are you doing? Switch your brains on. You know, you gotta, you, you, the game's on the line now, the game's on the line, which works at times. But he just came in and completely took all the sort of atmosphere away from the, from the room put on some tunes, made a coffee, started walking around the guys going, we all good? We happy? Yeah, cool, yeah. And his relaxed nature then led into the group like pulling ourselves out of a bit of trouble. So um, I think he, he the, the leaders who are so natural and authentic with the, the messaging they're delivering um, are very special to work, to work under and, and actually get results way quicker. How do you think that you, I mean, you seem very self-aware. How do you feel like you've evolved as a player over the years? Uh, oh, good question. Um, I've definitely emotionally changed a lot. I was a bit of a, the old white line fever, bit of a hothead in my, in my early days. Um, and that's why I decided that sports psychology might be a good thing for me because uh, in cricket, if you get caught swearing on the TV or you do something that looks uh, like it doesn't come across well on TV to kids, you get fined. And at 24, I was beginning to think, I can't afford to keep doing this. <laughs> um, so uh, I, that's when I started to make a, a few changes and calm down because I was getting a bit fed up of the criticism. Passion's the biggest thing for me in, in sport. I, I hate watching sports people on TV and think I need to inject you with some passion or I could do more for that shirt than you're doing. And that was all in me from such a young age. Like when I look back at, I'm a Nottingham Forest fan, but Stuart Pearce is a Forest player. I, I, I loved the fact he engaged with the fans and, and he looked like he'd give everything for the badge. And um, that was always one of my non-negotiables as a, as, a, as a player for me, that I will go every day and no one in that ground will go, I could give more than him. Because uh, I'm not the most talented, but I will I will give my heart and soul for it. So um, that you know that that was I, I just didn't know how to control it as a as a as a younger younger guy. You know I I uh, I'd quite often run into difficulties with maybe getting into a verbal battle with with players and and a word would come out of my mouth straight onto the TV straight into the office away you go. Um, so. I've definitely learned to be able to control my emotions much more. And that, that's where the sort of looking out the stadium came from, needing to take my, my brain away from the heat of the battle, because I'm so naturally competitive anyway. I just need to find my, my perfect point of it. I don't need to go over it. And actually, as soon as I go over it, my performance fails. I, 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 not red miss, but you know, my brain goes cloudy. I'm, I can't engage with the skill and, and I, I don't do my job for the team. So uh, I found that perfect biting point of passion in um, my, my mid to late 20s and my career just went on an upward curve really because um, you can control exactly what you're delivering more often. But, but I don't regret being overly passionate when I was younger. I don't regret... Um, being called into the office and getting the odd fine because I'd much prefer that than the other way. And I've had teammates where you feel you have to like tap them like, come on, mate, are you ready to go here? Yeah. And it's like, Phew. you know, I'd much prefer to be giving like the energy, giving the positive, um, you know, making sure that when you step onto that field, that crowd know that you're here to, to scrap for them and here to entertain them and here to battle for them. Mm, yeah. 
Well, before we open the floor to questions from the audience, I just wondered if there's, um, what's your best piece of advice that you've ever been given that you can share with us? Um, probably looking back to school, actually. Uh, my head coach at school was an ex-Lancashire cricketer called Frank Hayes. And um, he was actually George Best's best friend, I think. Uh, so he had a pretty lively um, <laughs> mid-twenties. Um, but when I was leaving school, so that would have been, what, 17, uh, June baby, uh, he said, promise me one thing. If you go into professional cricket, have the best filter in the world. And I, I was a bit like, really know what that means. But I can certainly look back now and it's evolved, definitely, because he meant, I've got an analytical brain, so I love information. Give me all the information. Bang, bang, yeah, I want to hear it all. But if you're taking all that information from loads of different people, you'll get cloudy in your brain. You won't exactly know what direction you're going in. So if you can filter the great little bits that suit you as a character, suit your team, suit your style, it'll give you such a great direction uh, in, in what you're trying to do. Uh, so I think he meant that he felt he got changed by coaches in cricket. He was a very young, flary player. And coaches tried to make him play in a certain way that didn't suit him. So he meant have the filter towards coaches. But where it's developed is actually that filter towards social media, to be honest. You know, in sport, it's, it's, uh, you've got to smile at some of the things that uh, end up on your Instagram and Twitter. But if you can filter that down and don't take that to heart and you know, laugh it off, sometimes don't even see it, uh, it stands you in much better stead. You know, I started my career, played for England in 2006. You had to physically go out, buy a newspaper, flip through to the cricket bit, get to the cricket correspondent and go, he slagged me off. <laughs> Whereas now you finish your day, you go on your phone and you can click on social media and there'll be, you know, without sounding rude, it's probably someone sat there in the pants eating Doritos, <laughs> to be honest, abusing you, saying you're not good enough. Um, so if you take that to heart, it's never ending. But if you can filter that out and, 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 not, and not let it distract your goal, that's probably the most important filter for young people coming through the sport. Mm. And I think just being able to filter feedback in general in, in your life and understand that it's something that you can either take to heart or just ignore. Yeah, and have sounding boards. Like I mentioned, like my mum, Molly, Sean, uh, friends who I can call up and I know that I will get their honest opinion. I will get positive feedback and... Um, and views that I might not necessarily agree with all the time, might challenge my views, but I know, I know are coming from their heart. If you have a small circle like that that you can bounce anything off and you know that it doesn't go any further, that's, that's vital in, I, I don't think just sport, I just think in life, to be honest, with, it, with all sorts of decisions. Um, and uh, I feel very lucky that I've got that sort of group. Lovely. Well, thank you, Stuart, for sharing so openly. I'm sure there's going to be lots of questions in the audience, so... If anyone has one, hands up. Yeah. <laughs> Straight away. Um, hi, Stuart. First of all, congratulations on becoming a father to Annabella. Um, and thank you for what was really, really inspirational talk just now. Um, my question is, from a leadership perspective, what's your motivational strategy for motivating yourself and for your team? Uh, motivational strategy? Um, I think, it, I think as leaders, you've got, to be, you've got to be so clear. And whether you work with people around you, but other senior players in the team to know the character you've got in your group, but you do have to be so clear on what suits that group, what style of, I say, I'll talk about cricket, but what style of cricket suits the personalities you've got and build that to what you believe in as well. Because if I just, just try and suit the players we've got in our group and I actually don't believe in that style, it's not gonna work. So you have to, I think you see in football, they actually, the managers end up creating that group of what they believe in by signing <laughs> loads of different players, but you can't do that in cricket so, so much. But you need to be able to give confidence of what you're trying to do within that group, but pick a style of play that suits them. And I think the biggest example of that is probably uh, 
Owen Morgan as the cricket captain and took over in 2015 and had a very clear style that he wanted to play. He was going to go all out attack, um, no consequences. Uh, even if we lose, we're going to continue like trying to slog the ball, whack it as far as we can. And he had to pick players that he believed could do that. And that meant changes. Um, so I think it's important as a leader not to be scared to change things when, um, when you don't think it's quite right. But what, what Morgs did so well is he delivered the message, his message of his team, of what he wanted to play like all day, every day. And it gave, some, gave players something to believe in. And then I think when your messaging is clear of the style, even if the players fail, even if they get no runs, but they play in that style, it's a success. And you have to remind them that they're not going to get dropped if they're playing in that style. If they, if they go to their own style selfishly and do okay, they're on a knife's edge, they can get dropped. But if they, if they play in the team's style and maybe not have the success that they want to personally, the backing of the senior group to go, it'll come, is everything. And I think English cricket's got way better at that in the last six, seven years. Certainly my dad's era, you'd, you'd get one game, two games, and if you didn't deliver, you're gone. Um, so the backing of the group, if you're, if you're committing to the team style of play, you can have bad weeks, bad, even bad months, and still, and still be part of that group. If you're going down your own route as a player and not buying into what the group's trying to do, you can have a bad week and you're gone. Yeah, really, really good question. I, I think when I look back, so the first game that I captained England was the first game of cricket I'd captained any team since my school under 12s. So, <laughs> you know, it's quite a big responsibility. You're now captain England, but, you, but, but you've not actually captained, I've never captained Nottinghamshire, I've never captained Leicestershire, I've not captained in England under 19s, Leicestershire under 17s, you know. So, um, it's a bit like, there you go, do, what, do that what you can. And I, I, I wish, I would have loved to have done some sort of leadership training with, with someone before coming into that role. Um, but at, tw at 24, I, at 22, I was not necessarily a dead set in a team. You know, I wasn't, my, my name wasn't penned into that team. So I don't think anyone could have seen me at 22 being captain at 24. So I think it was, it was probably quite difficult to foresee for, for an England team to go, uh, Broadly, we're going to send you on this course and learn and work with someone to develop leadership, which I think they have done since, actually. Uh, but what I would say with, you know, when you're, when you're on academies and you're 18, you do media training and you'll have days where you, you practice getting drilled questions by journalists and all that. If you could do leadership training from the, the, from the age of 18 joining professional staff, it doesn't mean that you're going to be captain. It doesn't mean that you want to be captain, but it means you'll be a great lieutenant and, and you'll be a great sounding board and you'll know what a captain's going through and you'll, you'll probably have more empathy for, for everything around professional sports. So, yeah, I mean, I, I'm in no doubt that um, I'd have loved to have been on some sort of... of leadership training before before being handed the England captaincy and uh, I actually I started last year a, a degree with the Football Managers Association in strategic leadership and I, I thought that was so interesting I wish I'd have done it 15 years ago because it's so interesting and so much of it applies to running a group of people and um, and being in a changing room and yeah this is based on on business but they work so closely together because if, if in a sports team, if you get it wrong and people start pulling in the wrong direction, you lose games. 
I'm sure in the business world, if people start pulling in the wrong direction, you, you lose sales and you lose you lose drive within your team. So um, yeah, I, 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 I've got an analytical brain. I'm fascinated by loads of different things. Um, but yeah, I, I probably do wish I'd have I've, I'd have learned a lot more younger. Yeah, um, I've certainly had times where I've, I've not been able to complete that. And, and that's when, um, you know, maybe it, it's rained and, it, and the umpires come into the room and go, right, we're out there in five minutes. It's like, oh, you know, you're on the massage table and you're short. It's like, oh my God, rush, <laughs> big trouble. Um, but so 2013, I uh, was going to Australia and we'd just won the Ashes in England and their head coach, had called for me, he was, he's from Queensland, um, that he'd called for the Australian fans to make me their enemy, like boo me and, you know, crucify me, basically. And uh, it was really entertaining, in a way, because, like, the newspapers wouldn't print my name, they, uh, they'd print my picture just as a ghost and things like that. It was, it was quite bizarre. Um, but I knew the, the Gabba is a ground in Brisbane. It's, uh, it's pretty intimidating. It's, I think it's 65,000 people how can I say this politely? They wear watermelons on their heads, like cut out as sunats and like KFC buckets on their heads. You know, it's like brutal sports fans. You know, they're there, they're there to drink their beer and nail the pommies. That's sort of like their day out. So I knew it was coming. I knew it was going to be pretty, pretty lively. So I sort of created this strategy. In the warm-up games, we went to Perth, Hobart, Melbourne. And I'd walk, and you get no crowds for warm-up games. So I'd walk round. There might be the odd person with his six-pack of beers sat on the bench, ready to shout abuse. And I'd walk around the grounds with the psychologist. And yeah, typical Aussies, they would give me give me a bit of abuse. And I'd listen to it. I'd accept it. So have a great day, like nice and calm, building my mind, but almost building a shield around me for what's for what's coming at the Gabba, and. Um, we came up with this strategy that the day before the game, I'd go out to the middle of the pitch because there's always work going on the day before, painting sponsors' logos and all that sort of thing. So the ground's always available. I'd go out to the middle of the pitch and I'd stand at the end of my mark and I'd do almost my routine that I would do the, day, the next day but with a ball in my hand. So I'd have a ball in my hand. There's no one in this ground, obviously. And I picture in my brain the, the crowd full. And I picture what I imagine the reception's gonna be. And I look around, all the way around the ground. And I, I can actually build the emotion in my, in my body to actually make my feel, my, myself feel like, wow, okay, like people are in the ground. And then I stand at the end of my mark and I bowl four overs, so 24 balls in my brain. I picture running in, bowl the ball, goes through to the wicketkeeper, bowl the ball, and I, I do that with my eyes closed so no one around me. And then I go to the other end and do exactly the same. So the, the, the mindset is, when I then approach the game the next day, it won't shock me that 60,000 people are gonna scream and shout and boo. I've experienced that yesterday. And that was the first time I tried it. And then sure enough, the next day came, on to bowl from the Allen border end, Stuart Broad, boo, like everything you could think of. <laughs> but it didn't affect me at all. And I actually, I felt very calm. And I actually fortunately took uh, six wickets that day. I had a really good day. And I felt really satisfied and grateful at the end of it that the outward noise hadn't, hadn't, hadn't affected me. So I do that every single, before every single game now. And uh, I walk onto the ground, whether it's Lords, you know, Trent Bridge, where I've played well, 10,000 balls probably. Day before the game, I do exactly that. So Lords, I actually picture champagne corks popping because that's what Lords does at 11 o'clock. You're bowling your first ball. All you can hear is push, push. <laughs> so I, I, can, I, I, uh, I tailor my mindset to exactly the stadium that I'm playing at. Um, and it, I've, you know, it looks a bit mad, but I've been out there in, you know, in the pouring rain the day before in a raincoat and the, all the ground's covered in sheets. And I'm out there at the end of my mark picturing 
me bowling and, and being able to bowl the ball through to the wicketkeeper because I genuinely have got to the stage now where I've mastered it, where when I bowl my first ball the next day, I've done it. I did it yesterday. I did it, I bowled eight overs in my brain. So I'm, I'm, my body's feeling fresh, but I'm just doing what I did yesterday. I'm good. Um, and actually, the, we've got loads of analysts who work with the team and stuff. And my, my first four overs of each test match now, I, don't th I think I've been for like, I've been hit for four, like four times in eight years or something. So it's, the, the stats are proving that I start really well. And um, it all came from a head coach calling uh, calling for his country to, to boo me. Um, so yeah, that's something that's really taken me to, to the next level. And not, I don't, wouldn't say it's taken away nerves, because you need nerves. You need that excitement, that drive, like that, that energy in the morning. But it's taken away failure for me a little bit, because I sort of just have a great confidence that I've been here before, I know what I'm doing, and I'll deliver it. Do any of your teammates do that? Sorry, Yeah, yeah, yeah. So they... Uh, I got to Australia and um, the, we've got the Barmy Army in England who are greatest fans, they're awesome. The, the Aussies have got, I think they call them the Booney Army, I think, after David Boone. And they'd had t-shirts printed that said, uh, Stuart Broad's a shit bloke. <laughs> bright, bright yellow t-shirts. Um, and beer holders, you know, stubby holders. And uh, I, 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 I really embraced it, I really enjoyed it. I know that sounds mad. Um, the Aussies are ultra competitive people. So I think actually after the tour, they had a bit of respect for how I went about it. Because uh, the Gabba, again, I walked down to the boundary's edge. And am I allowed to swear in it? I had, I had 25,000 people singing Broadies a Wanker. 25,000 of them. And I decided, like, I'm going to actually sing with them. <laughs> and I was like clapping on and like, singing with them and they were loving it by the end and uh i actually i actually remember lying in the hotel room that night and i was singing it <laughs> like, i'm on my own watching netflix and i'm going brody's a wanker and i was like what am i doing like because it just got all day um but but what actually really helped me that trip was uh sports fans just enjoy their day out whatever happens the abuse they give and they probably forget it the next day and i was in uh, christmas eve I was in Melbourne walking um, just up the road towards the Botanical Gardens with my mum. And you know, 15 yards away, there's this guy walking towards me, yellow t-shirt, Stuart Broad's a shit bloke. <laughs> so I'm thinking, oh, for goodness sake, not Christmas Eve. It's not coming again, is it? And he, he makes eye contact with me and walks towards me. And uh, I won't do the accent, but he, uh, I'm thinking he's going to swear at me or something. I don't really want this for my mum here. And he goes, oh, oh, good day, mate. Um, do you know where the park is? I'm like, yeah, there. He goes, cheers, buddy. Off he went. No idea I was. <laughs> He's got my name on his T-shirt. No idea. And that was great for me because I thought, you know, they're buying these T-shirts, but they don't care. They, they don't actually think I'm a shit bloke because they don't really know me. Um, but also at Melbourne on Boxing Day, they had these stands around the ground selling these T-shirts and whatever. You got me one, didn't you? Yeah. Um, and uh, the Barmy Army raided it. So they ran over, they were selling for what, like $10 or something. And the Barmy Army ran over to the store, ripped them all off and threw them in the river and ran away. And uh, that created another little like en enjoyable battle between the two fans. So yeah, I mean, I, I think I ended up on that tour. Um, I think I was leading wicket taker for us and, and my performances were really good. And by the end, the Aussies were going, Fair play to you. Like, that was great. That was awesome. Really enjoyed the banter. Uh, but I had to prepare for it. You know, if I hadn't have prepared for it, I think that would have hit me. It would have just slapped me in the face like, oh, my God, like, this is insane. Um, so I'm, I'm, I'm proud, actually, that I saw it coming and, and prepared myself for it, created a shield, because actually when it came, I was ready for it. It probably wasn't as bad. Actually, no, it couldn't have been worse. But it probably was, I thought it wasn't as bad as I thought it was going to be. It was definitely as bad as I thought it was going to be. But I was, I was ready for it. I think we've got time for one more question, if there is one more. Um, yeah, good question, actually. Um, 
I suppose the honest answer is that I have been fined since the age of 25, yes. Um, and, uh, yeah, there's times that, that it, it hasn't worked where I might maybe have been picked up saying something that I shouldn't have done or, um, I mean, cricket, they sort of call it sledging. The, the, the mind is to try and get the batter's mind away from thinking about their technique and their rhythm and their bubble. Um, so you, you do need to do that. It's part of the game a little bit to try and unsettle your opposition number. But um, there's, not, there's probably not been a time where I've, I've had the red mist and lost control and done something that maybe I can't even remember, which I had when I was 22, 23. There were times that you know, I'd do something and I'd be walking back sweating and steaming and teammates would come up and be like, you're right? Like, yeah, 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 yeah. But I'd like thrown the ball really angrily and maybe hit someone or, and, and that's completely unacceptable in our game. So there's, I've not done something that's been un, unacceptable, but there's been definite times where I've maybe got too involved in the confrontation, forgotten to look out the stand because I'm still involved in the confrontation um, and, turned, and turned around. But actually the, the older I've got, the battles, I, I, I never really start the battle myself now. The battles I get involved in is when a senior player from an opposition team attacks a younger player of ours, because I see that as my responsibility to be like, hang on a minute, who are you attacking here? Because, yeah, I, I get the sort of dark arts of cricket is to make is to make the younger player feel like they don't belong on that field or they they're out of their depth or or uh, to to scare them into not being able to deliver their skill. But that's my responsibility, having played 160 games to step in there. And actually, if you want to find me for sticking up to, for a young player, go ahead, because I'd much prefer to take the fine than, than see someone um, left out there hanging out to dry. Uh, and, and actually, we've got a captain under with Ben Stokes who probably epit epitomizes the standing up for your teammates. And um, it's an important thing. You see it in rugby, you see it in football, but cricket's obviously, you're a bit more separated as teammates in your fielding positions, but if if something if something happens to your to your younger teammates, uh, older teammates, drag them out of the way and say, "Come on, you better than that. You don't need to get involved." But when a younger teammate gets attacked, I think it is a bit of a responsibility as your older players to step in and take that heat uh, and let the younger player focus on their on their performance. And um, you know, I, I think I feel that because maybe and it's no one else's fault, but maybe I didn't have that so much when I was 22, 23. It was. Um, you know that maybe the team wasn't so connected um, that that you that you protect those younger players. Lovely. Well, thank you, Stuart Broad, everyone. This podcast is powered by Thrive. We're a complete learning and skills platform creating modern learning solutions for modern businesses globally. Check us out.